Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our Easter worship service. Uh, if this is your first time here, my name is Danny. I'm one of the, the three pastors on staff here at our church, and it is my absolute joy uh, to be with you, to be worshiping together, to be able to celebrate uh, this amazing holiday. Easter is the most important day in history, and so to be able to yearly celebrate this utmost important day is really, really our joy. Uh, if you were able to join us on, on Good Friday, you know that our auditorium, our sanctuary looked a little different than it does now. We invited people to come forward and to write on small pieces of paper, either a burden or a trial, a hardship, a sin on a piece of paper and to drop it before the cross. And today we've Posted a lot of them with flowers and with these lights and on the cross over there, symbolizing Jesus' victory and his resurrection over all these things. And this is what we come to do today, to celebrate our risen king, to be able to recognize what his triumph really means for all of us. And I pray that this service is one in which you can reflect completely and wholly inside of your soul, inside of your heart and your mind what the resurrection means for you each and every day of your life. So I pray that this message, that today's service, will fill your heart with more and more meditations of the goodness of Jesus. And to that end, would you just join me as we first pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great kindness displayed unto us through the cross of your son, Jesus. And we thank you for how great and amazing your love truly is that we could never speak about it enough, sing about it enough, reflect upon it enough, hear enough stories about it. We pray for every single person in this room that your grace would never, ever cease to amaze us. So at this time now, we humble ourselves before your word of good news And ask us that you show us more of your beauty through today. Fill our hearts as we seek more of you and as we commit ourselves to your praise. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So for the past week and a half, I actually uh, unfortunately got sick with the flu. Uh, It was just two Wednesdays ago, I was on the train, headed home, and I started feeling a little fuzzy after dinner, and I knew it. You know that feeling that you get, like, oh, I'm going to be sick tomorrow, and it happened. And at first, it wasn't too bad, but eventually, it started getting worse and worse. I canceled all my appointments. I was bedridden on my couch, and and eventually, I thought, you know what, I need to go to urgent care. So I went into the urgent care to just, I don't know, double-check that it wasn't strep throat or anything, so they did the test, and the doctor there at urgent care told me that I had the flu, Uh, That was a little surprising to me because I didn't have all the traditional symptoms of the flu, especially I didn't have a fever, and I didn't have any congestion. And what the urgent care doctor explained to me was that, well, first he asked me if I had gotten my flu shot earlier in the winter, and I had. So he said, well, sometimes, actually, uh, studies are finding that the flu shot can interact with the bug so that part of of the symptoms are taken away, and you still experience some of them. 
So that was really interesting to me. So I went home to read more on vaccines and, and, and what they're able to do. Because I remembered in, in middle school or high school, whenever it is, in health class, we, we learn about vaccines, that they're a dead or a weakened version of a particular virus, and we insert it into the body in order that your body can fight it off. But I, I forgot the exact intricacies of what was happening. So I went back to health class um, on, on Google and Wikipedia, and I learned that immune cells... They're constantly on the lookout in your body for foreign invaders, the bugs, the viruses that don't belong. And for when something like the flu uh, virus enters your body, the immune cells, they, they produce things called antibodies that tag the cells that are of the flu, which signals to your body to get rid of them, to expel them out of your body. And once all of them are rid, you become well again. You're not feeling the sickness. But that's actually not the end of the process. What is left behind, which I learned for the first time, some of you med students are thinking that I'm an idiot, but this was my first time. What's left behind are called memory cells. See, these memory cells protect your body from the germ if we're ever to enter again because they recognize the cell immediately. And memory cells are extremely effective at doing their job. So if you were to get sick without any memory cells, it generally takes people about a week. For me, it always takes two weeks to get better. Memory cells are so effective that if another virus were to enter your body, they would rid your body completely of those virus cells within under a day to the point you wouldn't even recognize or feel that you got sick. It's the memory cells working inside of your body that keep you well. My prayer for this service today is that the Holy Spirit would take us through a heart-transformative journey Kind of like the physical body goes through, but instead of of the physical body in the immune system producing memory cells, my prayer this whole week as I've been home in in preparation and thinking about all of you in this service is that the Holy Spirit would produce inside of each and every single one of us spiritual memory cells. I've been praying that as a result of this message and service, we will leave here with new spiritual memory cells within us. And then my prayer started to grow. God, not just this Easter, but every Easter. And then it grew further. Not just every Easter, but every Sunday. Not just every Sunday, but every small group Bible study, every personal reading of the scriptures, every morning devotional, every scriptural encouragement that we hear from a friend or online or that we have posted on a post-it and on our desk. May it leave behind memory cells that will buttress our spiritual health and protect us. So much so that when we experience hardship and trial in life, it will be these spiritual memory cells working inside of our souls that keep us well. So this is my goal in our time together. That Easter, the day of triumph, the triumph in Jesus' resurrection would be like a spiritual vaccine for you. And that we would leave with more as we leave this service. So we're going to go to the only place that we can find that source, and it's in God's word. So today's text comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And for this message, we're just going to be focusing on the latter half of the, of the chapter, verses 19 to 29. But in order for us to set the stage, I'm going to be reading the entire narrative of the chapter. So if you have a Bible on you, you can pull that out to John, chapter 20. We're going to start from verse 1. Otherwise, you can read along with me on the screen. From the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 1. Early on, the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. 
So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside, and he saw and believed. They did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after this, he showed them his hands and sighed, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what we're going to focus on in today's message is this one singular theme and point, and it's this, that Easter secures our confidence and releases our doubt, that the triumph of Jesus over the grave, over death and sin, completely secures and cements our confidence in him And releases all and any doubts. So John here narrates the original Easter morning. The very first Easter. 
So Peter, Mary, and John, they go to the tomb and find that the stone has been rolled away and that Jesus' body is not there. And to them, their first instinctual thought is not that he has risen, that he has resurrected. Rather, they think that someone had stolen his body. So Peter and John head back to where they were staying, as, as John tells us, in defeat. But Mary sticks around. And as we read, she meets Jesus face to face and he tells her, Mary, go tell my brothers what you have seen. And she does. And this is where we enter in and look more carefully at the details. Verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders. So this is evening of the first Easter. A number of hours have passed by. And at this point, there's 10 disciples. We know that Judas is no longer there. And for some reason, we don't know And we will never know. It's not explained. Thomas isn't there. So there's 10 disciples. And they're behind locked doors in fear of the Jewish leaders. They're still hiding, defeated, afraid. But let's not forget, Mary already told them what had happened. She already explained to them, no, there's nothing to fear. He has risen. But it's clear from their actions and their fear that they don't believe her. They lack faith, and in their hiding, they show us that they misunderstood who Jesus really was. They doubted Mary's testimony. They did not believe in the fulfillment of this glorious triumph. And even in the peak of their doubt, Jesus displays his grace unto them again. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after this, he said... After this, he showed them his hands and side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. I know this doesn't seem like that dense of a verse to study, but there is so much going on here. Firstly, Jesus goes to them. We like to talk a lot about in our Christian life how Jesus meets you right where you are in your journey of faith. And in this sense, it's very literal. They're in hiding. They're behind locked doors, and he goes directly to them. Another display of his grace. Secondly, Jesus performs a miracle. It says the doors were locked, but he appears. So he, he performs another miracle by supernaturally crossing that barrier to give them more evidences of his power, more reasons to believe. And thirdly, in this, just this few words, just as our God has done from the beginning of time, and just as he will do till its end, he fulfills another promise. A few weeks ago, as I was preaching the Thursday of the original Holy Week, we, we went through John 16, if you remember, when Jesus is conversing with his disciples. And what does he tell them? You might remember from that message. Jesus says, in a little while you will see me no more, speaking of his death. And then after a little while you will see me. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Jesus says to them, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is a few days before this happened. This is Thursday. And another promise is fulfilled because he does overcome the world. And he overcomes it in a way that they never would have expected. He says, I'm going to see you again. And he does. He goes straight to them in the physical body. He sees them face to face. And he promises that they will be joyful. And what does it say? That the disciples saw him and were overjoyed. Jesus, in his grace, constantly gives them reasons to believe. And we find that the disciples have absolutely no shortage of evidence to trust God and to trust his word. When I think of some of the most vivid memories in my life, the ones that quickly come to mind are my birthday parties when I was a kid. 
When I was a kid, one of my favorite places in the whole world was this place called Canopy Lake Park. It's a small little uh, amusement park in New Hampshire. It's, it's where all dreams come true, right? And the most iconic ride at Canopy, so many of you have never gone, and you frankly shouldn't, unless you have small children, then you should go. And it's this roller coaster here. It's called the Yankee Cannonball. Any, any people been here on the Yankee Cannonball? Oh, yeah, represent. This is all the local. Why have you been on this? You're not from here. Uh, the Yankee Cannonball is the iconic ride in Canopy Lake Park. And as I was a kid, I was the one who was secretly so jealous of all the brave kids that went on because I was too scared. I was the one questioning. Like, I was a little kid having two, like, you know, rational thoughts. Like, when was the last time they inspected this, you know, for safety? You know, that was me. It's rickety. For those of you who have been there before, you, you've heard it. It's like, there's, like, paint that's chipping off the sides. It's made of wood. If you look up the original picture that this was uh, when it was built, it is a long time ago. It is gray and and faded uh, picture. The first time I remember where I I, I mustered up the courage, it was my birthday party. And all my friends were going to go on, and my mom was going to wait for us out at the bottom of the line. She said, all your friends are going. You can't be the only one. This is your birthday party. She convinced me, so I get in. And then begins the one-hour anxiety-filled line where you're just, like, pretending that you're okay and, like, kind of have to pee a little bit. And so finally I get there. And you know when you're, like, close enough to see it? It's still, like, maybe three rides worth away from you, but you see it, and it comes in, and, like, all the steam releases. And then you see the people with their nervous, like, smiles start, like, going up a little bit. And eventually I got there, and the, you know, pimply teenagers, like, holding the thing, ready to let me in. And I chickened out. I turned around. And I I walked out. Let me just tell you that leaving a roller coaster when you've made it to the end of the line is the walk of shame for a middle school kid. Because you don't just go straight out. You weave out. In between all the people who you know are judging you. And you know that it's guaranteed that you're going to pass at least five kids who are smaller than you that are like wimp, you know, like looking at you as you pass by. That was me. Fast forward one full year later, I'm grown now. I'm a mature adult. And I made it on. I got to the end of the line. I was still nervous, but I got on. I enjoyed it. I was come off, and I was just bright smile, and I was hooked. Then began my love and obsession for roller coasters. I was the first in line. I was the one encouraging the other scared kids to get on. I was like, you know what? Canopy's too small for me. We're going to Six Flags. And then when I get my license, I'm going to drive down to Jersey and do the King Dakar. I'm going to do everything, and I loved it. All it took for me to trust its safety and then to enjoy its benefits was one experience. That's it, just once, and I was all in. I think spiritually in life, the same thing happens to us. Oftentimes it takes one experience, one rush, one emotional high, one adrenaline kick, one story, one memory, one huge prayer request answered. One milestone hit, your first job. You're getting into the program of your dreams, graduating. Your your first child in your family. Something you've prayed for so fervently, just one, coming to fruition. Something in your family working out for the best. An unexpected or expected blessing that God places in your lap. And we become so trusting of God's goodness in our lives. And don't you bask in the trusting feeling? In the way that like kids get onto the roller coaster, they're all nervous, and when they get off, they're like, ha, ah, like glowing. 
It takes one experience. But the difference here is that our brains are pretty secure for the long haul. My opinion of roller coasters, even if I see a story on the news, somebody fell off, there was disaster, I still trust them. Our our minds can be pretty tight-sealed and secure, but our hearts, on the other hand, they're porous, leaky, forgetful. I think our hearts are kind of like a sponge. They get filled up with the truth and the promises of God, those one things that fill us up and overflow the sponge, but eventually the, the water slowly starts to leak, and we end up like the disciples, doubtful again. See, this is where we find the disciples on the original Easter evening. Jesus has given them countless proofs of his power, his reliability, his faithfulness. Let's not forget who these guys are. These 10 men saw Jesus turn water into wine. They saw him like give blind people sight and crippled and lame people walk. These guys saw him take a little boy's lunch and feed thousands of people. He's like, a little boy comes with a Lunchables. He's like, Capri Sun for everybody. (laughs) They saw that. They saw him converse with demons and talk to them and then cast them out. They watched him debate with religious leaders and leave them dumbfounded and speechless. They watched what Jesus could do with just his voice. He used three words at a tomb of a dead man and said, Lazarus, come out. And the man walked out of the tomb. They were in a storm on the sea, fearful of death, in raging wind and and waves. And Jesus steps out and rebukes the wave, and it becomes silent and still. And yet, we find them hiding. And then we get to Thomas. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So we read, uh, this is the NIV, I will not believe. But actually in the Greek, there is much more emphasis. So other translations will say, I will never believe, or I certainly not will believe, I will certainly not believe. His doubt is unwavering. His, res- his, his doubt in the resurrection of Jesus is firm, it's unyielding. They cannot convince him. Now keep in mind, again, who's telling him these things? It's the ten disciples. They're the ones that he spent the past few years in his life with. They were the closest companions of Jesus. They were with him when they saw all the miracles happen. Can you think about the ten people in this world that you trust the most? Maybe parents, siblings, best friends, mentor, pastor. Compile the list of ten. And then think if they all told you the same thing. Wouldn't it be hard to not believe their testimony? But he says, I will not believe. You cannot convince me. So what does Jesus do? He shows up graciously and lovingly again. A week later, his disciples are in the house again. And Thomas was with them. The doors, they're still locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting. Believe. He miraculously appears into the house again past locked doors. He greets them with peace. 
And instead of rebuking Thomas, instead of questioning how stubborn he could be to not believe in the ten, instead of lecturing him on, don't you remember all the things that I did? Who are you to doubt? He gives him the exact thing that he needed. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Thomas, stop doubting. Believe. See, Thomas, he's a very famous biblical figure, and he gets a lot of flack as the doubter. His nickname is Didymus the twin, but actually, we, we're like, we ignore that. We're like, nah, his, his nickname is the doubter, Doubting Thomas. But he has such a helpful testimony because we can relate to him, can't we? Thomas's doubt is relatable to us. And, and, and maybe for those of you in this room, maybe some of you have completely relate to his doubt in that you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But I think the majority of you who are Bible-believing Christians and followers of, and disciples of Christ, baptized believers, you don't struggle necessarily to believe in the resurrection, but maybe you struggle and doubt to believe that Easter matters in your daily life. Or especially in the big things. What doubt are you wrestling with today? Where do you doubt that Jesus' love and his plans for you are perfect? What areas in your life do you doubt that the resurrection has any power or significance? In this demographic, many of us doubt God's good plans for your future. This demographic here in Boston and the young working professionals and students, uh, higher ed folks, we're always in transition And so it's easy to doubt whether we're going to be okay on the other side of change. What's going to happen to me if I don't get the proper grades that I need in my time at college? What's going to happen when I graduate college? Will I get the right job, be in the right city? Will I even get into the right program? What what happens if I don't get into the grad school and program that I've been planning for for 10 years? Will I have any direction in my life? Will I be a failure? Many of us struggle to doubt with, or struggle doubting with God's perfect love for us when it comes to relationships. When is God going to provide me the right friends and community or the right church? Will God provide a spouse for me? Many of us wrestle and doubt with our singlehood. Doubt has crept in, and you feel that a loving spouse is something that God may never provide for you. We doubt God's sovereign and perfect will over raising our families. Will God provide us with children? If we have children, will they grow up healthy and have everything they need to have the best opportunities in life? Do we live in the right neighborhood for schools? Will they grow up to love Jesus? Will we parent them the right way? Will they be safe from the pressures and hardships of life? Were they, our kids, going to end up okay? We doubt when it comes to health and sickness. Maybe you wrestle with a loved one who is sick or one who has passed away. You wonder if the hardship will ever pass away with it. Will they ever be well? Will these scars ever fully heal? Will our illnesses, maybe they're our own, or that of our loved ones, ever get better? Do we doubt the salvific power of the gospel? What about loved ones coming to faith? Will the people I love so deeply who don't know Jesus ever meet him? What's going to happen when they pass away? We doubt God's redemptive power in our brokenness, carrying the heavy burdens of our sins and failures that make us shameful, things that we wrote on these pieces of paper. 
Are my sins or my failures going to hold me down and drag me down forever? We doubt God's justice. Is he ever going to make things right? Every turn I, time I turn on the TV or look at social media, there's always another thing that's unjust. Many of us doubt the way God sees us. We have so much difficulty loving ourselves the way that God uniquely and beautifully created you. See, it's at these moments when doubt creeps in and threatens to overwhelm us where our spiritual memory cells come in, start tagging and removing the doubt cells and keep us well. And this is how Easter secures our confidence and releases our doubt. If Easter happened, if Easter actually happened, and all of us are not just fools dressed up and celebrating, if the triumph of Jesus really happened, if he rose from the grave, then my confidence, friends, is this, that Jesus' triumph over death and sin has secured your eternal destiny. Therefore, therefore, surely he loves you enough to have secured your short 80 years on this earth. If you are promised blessing and riches beyond comprehension, and if you die today or 60 years from now, you are going to be in paradise. If you believe that because of the resurrection, then certainly we can believe that God's love is perfect for us in a short 80 years. If he has triumphed and is reigning in victory, surely the battles of this lifetime are too, that sometimes feel too big for us or small for him. Surely, as the psalmist in 23 says, his goodness and mercy shall, will, certainty, follow me all the days of my life. Surely his plans for our lives are for his glory and our good. So this is the critical question. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that he revealed himself to his disciples, that he gave them proofs of his resurrection and his power? If your answer is yes, then let us respond to our Lord God with our complete faith and trust. Every Easter, every Sunday, every work of God in your life, another reason to have no doubt, but rather live in confidence in what the work of Jesus means for your everyday life. There's a man named Alex Honnold who's famous for being the only person who did a free solo climb up El Capitan in Yosemite National Park in California. Those of you who have had an Apple computer, you probably, it was your background at one point, but this is El Cap. It's this giant rock wall in Yosemite. If you haven't heard this remarkable story, it is one of the most amazing feats in human history. See, free soloing is a form of rock climbing where you just climb. No rope, no equipment, no safety net, just your shoes, chalk, and your body. It means you risk dying with one simple mistake, one unexpected change. Alex Honnold climbed up 3,000 feet of rock wall with nothing but his chalk bag. If you look at how big this is, look at the trees over here, what they look like in scale. Let's take a look up at the screen for a short clip of him actually doing this climb.
where his foot is right now, that looks like a smooth wall to me, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about you. From the bottom all the way to the top, it took Alex just under four hours. He spent years of his life. He says it was a seven-year or lifetime dream, seven-year journey, and one full year of rehearsing, visualizing, memorizing the thousands of hand and foot movements he would need to make perfectly in order to not be dead. So this required tons of hard work and preparation, obviously. In a speech that Alex gave at a TED Talks event, he talks about the biggest part of his preparation, and you should check it out, it's, it's worth watching, is overcoming doubt. He shares how some of his foot movements and some of the places he had to hold his body up with his hands were extremely dangerous and difficult, and he just could not doubt that they would hold him. He had to trust it. And some of the places, he he called them handholds. Let me show you what he's talking about. That is not a handhold. That is a smooth rock. This looks flat to me. This one, he said, was the size of a number two pencil. So when speaking of his preparation, Alex says, quote this, what if it's too scary? What if I got too tired? I had to consider everything so that there was no room for doubt to creep in. I visualize and rehearse to remove all doubt. He ended up being so prepared that according to Alex, that morning when he got early to Yosemite, stood at the base of Al Cap and looked up, that he said he felt confident. And he said that as he started climbing, he felt better than he did when he was on the ground. Quote, I knew exactly what to do. I had no doubts. In hearing his story, I am absolutely amazed at what humans have the ability to do and accomplish with the removal of doubt. This guy was the slightest slip away from falling to his death. There are certain things he could not control. What if one of his muscles spasmed? He mentions how along the, uh, the cracks there's different birds and snakes and rats. What if one came out and shocked him? What if the wind blew harder than they expected? He just everything, but he's so comfortable. He had no doubts. And all of this trust and this confidence that he had was in his own hands. It was purely based on his training and his practicing. As I reflect on this Easter Sunday, the day that our Lord Jesus resurrected from the grave and changed history forever, it makes me think that if a rock climber can conquer and scale a 3,000-foot wall and do so without safety equipment because his preparation pushes out doubt... It makes me marvel and overflow with excitement at what a son or daughter of God who places their complete faith in the power of the resurrection of Jesus could overcome. What trial in your life could you not overcome if your training is actually rooted in not you, but in that and in this day? Not because you practiced hard enough or because you read your Bible enough or because you are holy enough. It is completely outside of your hands or your performance. What doubt in life could stumble those who experience the blessings of the triumphant power of Jesus on Easter? What life trial or difficulty could shake those who trust our Savior so much? This guy's safety net, his safety net was a human, fallible, weak brain. Our safety net is the fact that the creator of the universe knows you personally, intimately, and cares for you deeply.
that Jesus really did resurrect from the dead, if you believe that with everything in you, let that be the truth that pushes out doubt and gives you confidence in what God has ordained for you in this lifetime and for your eternity. See, where the disciples and Thomas struggled is they were focused on the now, what was before their eyes. The Messiah died. Jesus died. It seemed like the greatest failure. Not only did he die, he died on the Roman symbol of power. The cross is not, was not originally something we would gladly wear around our necks. It was a symbol of fear and dominance. And so he didn't just die or pass. He died an emphatic, what seemed like an emphatically failure of a death. And so doubt wells up within them because they're focused on what's happening before them. They were stuck on that. And instead of holding onto what Jesus said and what he did, they focus on what is happening right now. And this is the same exact position that we will find ourselves time and time again, friends. So my singular application point to go along with our one point in the message is this. Be a historian of God's faithfulness in your life, church. All of us are working towards some sort of expertise right now. If you're an undergraduate student, you have what we call a major. If you're a grad student, you're working towards a particular degree in a specific field of study. If you're working, you are working on your expertise and mastery in your field, in your profession. See, I believe that whether we know it or not, we do that spiritually all the time too. What the disciples are doing and what we do when we wrestle with doubt is that we start becoming more like professional fortune tellers. We kind of test the waters and kind of look at the clouds and the wind, do the cards and figure out what's happening before me right now that will allow me to predict what's going to happen. It's like we're spiritual like meteorologists. We look at the radar. What's happening today? It's cloudy My life's about to get really rough, and I despair, and so I doubt, and our trust in God, it wanes, it ebbs and flows based upon the figurative sunny or darkness of our lives. Be a historian of the faithfulness of God in your life. Don't be a spiritual meteorologist. Be a growing expert in all the ways God has shown himself to be faithful and kind and perfectly loving to you. Have your mind full of the miracles he's done, the acts of kindness he has shown you, his countless loving provisions and all the perfect promises he's fulfilled. Remember the ways he has been good to you. Meditate on his word that has changed your life and significantly impacted you, whether it be a life verse or the ones that you've memorized. Look deeper, church, deeper for signs of grace in your life story that you have never noticed before. Dig up old stories and memories that reflect his perfect presence from the day that you were born as a child to your time today. Talk about it. Share about it with your friends. Write in journal about it. Write down the things that you know your mind will forget and that you cannot contain so that you will remember. Create libraries and share with your children and their children and their children that will create a lasting legacy of the stories of God's faithfulness. I pray that every Good Friday and Easter would be another reminder of Jesus' work on the cross and means sharing in his triumph. If you can stand here today and believe that this is a story of your eternal destiny, what doubt in God's goodness could the twists and turns of your life possibly do? So with every Easter, every Sunday... Every Bible verse, every biblical truth you hear, every praise song that you hear on the radio or you sing with the praise team up on the stage, with every prayer that you lift yourself or is lifted 
on your behalf, I'm praying that a spiritual memory cell is left behind. And you are left with no doubt. And the only thing your heart and mind has any care left to do is to worship. To praise him, to give thanks, to give him your life. May every Easter, every Sunday morning as a miniature Easter, be another reminder to you that Jesus has triumphed over the grave. And his victory is one that he shares with you as his precious child. This Easter morning, let us not live in doubt like the disciples were, believing that he was dead. Let us live in joyful confidence, knowing that Jesus has triumphed and he is surely alive.